0: Women in Archaeology podcast. Thank you for joining us today and listening to a back episode that is very important, as you all know. Um, I'm sure you're all tired of hearing um, slash very ramped up about this upcoming midterm election, and we thought it was timely to bring back episode 16, Trump versus cultural resources. This was originally released under the Archaeology Podcast Network and was recorded January after Trump was elected, and we review some of the potential conflicts between his uh, known attitudes towards cultural resources Um, as well as during the election term so uh, buckle down and uh, let's take a ride into the recent past about two years ago and see um, where we thought we would be and think about kind of where we are today and how we're going to do these next two years
1: so again thanks for joining us enjoy Welcome to another episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we're going to discuss our concerns for the future of archaeology under the Trump administration. We'll talk about the recent ACRA webinar, whether or not Trump even cares about heritage in the first place, and what current cultural resource management laws we're worried about. I'm Emily Long, and I'm here with Kirsten Lopez. Thanks for joining me. Of course. I've been so looking
0: forward to bringing this discussion up here. Uh, the ACRO webinar was such a big deal uh, when it came out or news of its existence that it was going to be airing Um
1: back in, what was that, November? Yeah, it was pretty much like right after the election, um, the American Cultural Resources Association was like, hey everybody, we will have a webinar to figure out what on earth we're going to do with cultural resources versus Trump.
0: Yes, and with this, there was so much excitement. They had, I believe, over 2,000 people Sign up, which was more than their servers could handle. <laughs> so, <laughs> for better or worse, they actually did a pre-recorded session of about a half hour, and the transcript is available online. Um, and it was recorded or presented uh, November 28th of 2016, it appears. So I was very much front row, signed up. I got time out of class to go, um, like many other archaeologists that were about as excited as i was we were a little disappointed that it was a pre-recorded session but yeah. nonetheless um it these are serious uh, concerns that are being brought up especially in the light of this last year's attention that's been brought to archaeology and cultural resources management in particular with uh dapple or the dakota access pipeline work um There's been a number of other projects and concerns with other pipelines, the rise of the We Are Still Here movement, the uh, Native uh, youth movement that has really kind of uh, been so much stronger and has been very exciting to see develop in the ways that it has, especially with regard to DAPL, the No Mm -hmm. DAPL movement and the outcome
1: of that Mm -hmm. so and if our listeners aren't too familiar with dapple we have episodes galore on the network about dapple so check them out
0: yes (laughs) and so without going too far into what that was about just the the sheer attention if you are on facebook ever um most people, I believe, had seen it somewhere floating around uh, through Facebook at one point or another over the last, I think it started, they really started um, bringing attention to it in September of last year or so. Um, but with that... One of the things that the American Cultural Resources Association did was try and bring some general attention to the cultural resource laws, in particular those which may have been at risk. And so I think a lot of people, being that it was, it is sort of the association for cultural resource managers that it would have gone into a little more detail than it did uh being a half hour it was kind of a skim over uh, but it was really just a call to action uh to me is you know it, it gave a survey of the concerns and at the end they went into sort of how each of us can get involved um and make Your voice heard uh, with regard to the importance of archaeology, history, historical preservation, um, national parks, any of that. So Mm -hmm. that, I think, was their overarching message. Um, But they did go through and I'll just mention a few things that they touched on. Um, They discussed a little bit about the relevance and what might happen with Section 106 and NEPA review, which are laws um, or portions of laws that have to do, or, or that come in contact with archaeology in a cultural resource management context. So this is usually when there's development um, or other projects which involve federal management of any kind, whether it be permitting, whether it be on federal property, um, any Mm. sort of federal involvement brings sort of general types of environmental review. And with that environmental review, cultural resource review is also included. So
1: that's Mm. where... Usually part of uh, NEPA, correct? Yes. National Environmental... Protection. Policy? Protection. Ah, almost had it. <laughs> A policy
0: Act. I think you may be right. Yes. So there's <laughs> NEPA. Um, there is, of course, more recently in 1990, 1990, 1991 was NAGPRA. And while NAGPRA for many may seem like it's not something that's often – uh, touched on anymore or something that people aren't highly involved with anymore. Um, it is, and certain things such as, as we'll mention, the very recent passing of the repatriation of Kennewick man back to the tribes in Washington mm-hmm. um, from the Army Corps of Engineers mm mm-hmm.
1: So showing it's, the law is still very much relevant, even as we're going um, forward into the next administration.
0: Exactly. And any uh, one of the, the big things that came up with DAPL or with the Dakota Access Pipeline was the application, proper application and Im- implementation of many of these cultural resources laws, including NAGPRA, including Section 106, um, and these things, of course, end up becoming uh, very. They for most people they're very um, cerebral. It's they're it's hard to grasp and it's hard to really connect to. And Especially so, if you I read th- the law
1: from for word for word for word, <laughs> for, word like, for, huh? for word,
0: yes, I've taken six months worth of study of these laws and and (laughs) depending on who's teaching it and how it goes it it can go differently Mm. but hands-on work with the laws is also helpful but I mean it takes people years to really kind of grasp the implementation of these which really isn't actually different from implementing any sort of large agency laws such as those um which apply to environmental law,
1: which Mm -hmm. cultural law is just a small portion of that. It sounds like ACRA touched upon NAGPRA, um, the National Historic Preservation Act, uh, pretty lightly. National Historic Preservation Act, including Section 106
0: and NEPA, were basically, uh, they did discuss them, but what they discussed was a little bit more about how many people are employed, how it functions, and why it's important, Mm -hmm. and less about how it will be affected by the administration. Mm -hmm. They kind of brush over it very lightly. Um, I'll give a quote here. See, uh, so the quote here is, NEPA requires that agencies consider the impacts of major federal actions on the environment, which also includes impacts on cultural resources. CRM firms help identify and evaluate those effects. So this is something that is obvious if you work in CRM at all. Mm-hmm. and um, But it's it's great for the general public who have really no idea what it's about they talk about advocacy being a really big part of what they do um, as an association uh, there's about 1300 CRM firms in the United States they estimate which employ more than 10,000 professional archaeologists architects architectural historians and historians so this gives you they they give it a a scope of the industry and the portion of the economy and how much of the economy is at risk if CRM is put on the chopping block, if any of these laws are shortened or Mm shortcutted. And that was, I think, probably their biggest point to this or sort of the biggest plus to the way that they presented this was it kind of put in frame uh, more towards the public. So if anyone who's listening to this is interested or knows people Mm -hmm. that may be interested in knowing more about this can definitely look up the transcript or the uh, webinar itself, which I believe um, is the the
1: presentation is on YouTube. I think it's on YouTube and Vimo. Okay. Yeah. Um, And yeah. And you're right. I mean, it's a, it's a really good introduction into what is cultural resource management? What are the concerns for a lot of us that are in, that profession. It didn't go quite into the nitty gritty as much as I think we would have liked, but it does yes. provide an excellent overview.
0: Exactly. And that's where there was a lot of frustration within the cultural resource community that I saw, at least, um, as far as their, the way that they covered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most nitty gritty they get into is about um, the risks of tax reform and the historic preservation fund, mm-hmm. continuing to fund what it does fund, mm-hmm. which would be a lot of different historic preservation programs, a lot of things that people think of, like Jamestown, a lot of National Parks Service system um, his historic projects uh as well as like the smithsonian i believe mm-hmm. falls under that i could be wrong on, on that so large
1: but... interpretive sites to museums there's a lot going on exactly there. exactly
0: so this is kind of the the brush over that they give which is again like you said great review but to really get into the nitty-gritty We decided to talk to a few people and got some amazing detail on how this
1: can go very sideways. And Chelsea Slotin will now be joining us for the rest of our discussion. So before we get into the different laws that could be affected and our concerns about them, um, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, does... Trump even care about cultural heritage? Should we be worried in the first place? Like, what is setting off our concerns to have the ACRA webinar, um, different Facebook groups that are the archaeologists against Trump? And so it's important to consider what is his stance on cultural heritage, cultural resources in the first place? And what's interesting is, uh, and we'll provide these articles for you in the links after the show notes on the our webpage, he doesn't necessarily have a love, it seems, of true history of uh, of the past. Like, oh my gosh, look at Mesa Verde. It is the most beautiful park I've ever been to. We need to protect it. It's more, it seems, like a love of history when it suits him if that makes sense for example uh he has a historic house that he completely restored and it was also a club it's in um florida and so he put millions of dollars into it and he donated easements on the property to the national trust for historic preservation which affords him tax benefits but that's his house it's his club And we don't really see him donating tons of money to the National Preservation um, or National Preservation Organizations um, and that kind of thing. Also, (laughs) there um, is a story about how at at the Trump National Golf Club in Sterling, Virginia, that he installed a plaque. Commemorating uh, how Americans, both from the North and South, lost their lives in this battle, uh, and he placed this plaque near the 14th and 15th holes um, of this golf course. And it's like, my goodness, it's this plaque. It's commemorating this legendary battle, and it turned the Potomac River crimson. It even has a. a Quote from Trump saying, "It is my great honor to have preserved this important section of the Potomac River." Nothing ever happened there. No battle. Of course, nothing. And historians confronted him, confronted him with it, and he's just like, "Oh well, it was a prime site for river crossing so somebody must have gotten shot there in the Civil War." And historians again are like, "No, nothing happened in that particular spot." And Trump again said, so, and this is a quote, so if people are crossing the river and you happen to be in a civil war, I would say that people were shot. A lot of them. Yeah, Where's so that? I I think. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Um, I think that Trump probably likes the idea of historical preservation in that it can add grandeur or uniqueness to himself his prestige his locations such as this golf course that you're talking to Mm -hmm. um but that doesn't necessarily mean he has any interest in it being correct Mm -hmm. um and that's a problem because if you're just looking at something for how it can help you not necessarily how it can help the people who's culture it is that we're looking at or again just kind of trump's post-factual mindset is Mm -hmm. concerning
1: well there's a another quote and it's write your story the way you want to write it and i find that incredibly alarming that it's just he's just making something up and doesn't care about historians doesn't care about the scholarship of even this st- one spot it on a golf course he doesn't care well if we extrapolate that well, what does that mean for other historic areas prehistoric areas is it only important so much as he can make up a story about it or its monetary value
0: what do you well, think well in so- Some of this, to me, definitely draws a lot of attention to why archaeology and history and historic preservation is important in the first place. Um, Mm -hmm. This really, to me, brings to mind why, I mean, there are wars over archaeological finds. You have police guarding archaeological sites. You have entire countries, namely Zimbabwe, which was named after an archaeological site. like The archaeological site was found before it became a country of its own with that name in its modern form. So this is where you get the importance of archaeology to identity, Mm -hmm. and with that, nationalism and other expressions of patriotism and integration of, again, identity – With this, and this is where I see a really big problem is his uh, dismissiveness of accuracy when it comes to, uh, like you're saying, just making stuff up, but when it comes to our identity as an American people, if you are leaving out entire groups of people. If you're making stuff up because it's profitable or because it's convenient to you, that's very strong on the propaganda arm and really kind of harkens back to, you know, some, let's say, early 20th century propaganda. Um, Authoritarian regime-esque. Yes, exactly. And not just in the U.S., but elsewhere. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. been used to create in, say, Nazi Germany, a sense of patriotism that was linked to ethnicity, which didn't actually have any root in reality. And this is where you really get a lot of, and and this kind of uh, curtails in or blends in with the, the big discussion on fake news and how can we sort out fact from fiction on the internet. Um it's it's a becoming kind of a messy matter, but definitely an important one and mm-hmm. and thus the importance of having this conversation. Um but as you're saying, Chelsea, uh, very much a concern. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Going off of that, I know when you started getting to into post processualism and the um archaeological theory and looking at critical archaeology and how we should be aware of what we are doing and saying as archaeologists um, and how the the public is perceiving it and the media is reporting on it because what we see or what we say we see happening in the past can mm-hmm. be taken to justify current um, regimes of power much like happened in, in Nazi Germany and um, And we as archaeologists have a responsibility as the individuals with the training to look at these sites and analyze them and report on them to make sure that it's being done correctly in a manner that um, respects all parties involved. Mm -hmm. And I I don't see that happening with Trump. It is respecting his... um, his wishes, He's
0: and more there are a more
2: people in the world up. than just him.
0: Yes. And, oh, go ahead and finish. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to, to, to cut in um, and just to mention or back up a little bit, uh, because I know this, I brought this up, and it is something that is seen on the Internet all the time, and people that I know that more out of disdain voted for, or feeling like they didn't have a choice, voted for Trump, um, which is an unfortunate, you know, round of events, but happened yes. in a widespread sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, bringing up Nazi Germany was probably bad, <laughs> bad practice, bad juju on my part for um for that, because while it's accurate, I think it is very polarizing and Mm -hmm. can really pull away and separate people. And um, because it is such an aversive thought, because of our knowledge of the history of it, Mm -hmm. um, people don't want to associate or feel like they're being associated with something that may be similar to that. So Mm -hmm. I'm just going to bring up a couple of other historic examples
1: that have similar themes. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll go through some of these examples.
0: Hey, this is Kirsten again. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear so far, visit us on our blog, womeninarchaeology.com. Where you can read about women in the field, current issues in archaeology, and find back episodes from over two years of women in archaeology. You can follow us on Twitter at WomenArchies, contact us via email at women in Archaeology at gmail.com we always love to hear from our listeners however if you do like what you hear and wish to support us you can visit our patreon account links to that and organizations mentioned in this episode can be found
1: in the show notes thanks again for listening we're gonna um, Kirsten's going to give some other examples of the forgotten history or sometimes forgotten history of the United States that are good parallels for uh, what? Could be ignored, and what should be taught, and what should be embraced in terms of scholarship that we need to know. Not embraced in that it was a good thing. Embrace that it happened, and we need to yes. acknowledge that. So please, yes. So one of the one of the things um, that
0: comes to mind, um, you know, it, so much of what we're taught in elementary and middle and high school is the evils of World War II when it comes to Nazi Germany. Um, however, one of the things that isn't discussed were some of, were a number of atrocities that were committed by the United States government towards the Native American population here in the U.S., as well as some of the policies of the Spanish toward uh, Native Americans, and uh, and indigenous South Americans throughout um, the 15, 16, 1700s and on. So, and just as a brief over, uh, you know, cap. Uh, you have, of course, uh, the introduction of disease. But beyond that, there were a number of, count a countless number of uh, battles. Uh, that were not only unfair, but would today be considered uh, genocide, in that people were hunted um, in many cases and in many ways uh, based on what they looked like. If they were uh, too native, Uh, quote unquote to native, uh, being if they spoke their native language and wore traditional dress or lived in traditional villages, um, they were usually hunted down. Uh, Depending on the area of the country that you lived in and the tribe and the political history of that area, because it is very unique to each region. There were some things, say, in, on the West Coast where uh, there was a practice where hunting licenses were actually given for scalps, and there was a price paid for skeletal remains. No questions were asked.
1: Didn't the so, Smithsonian have a huge call for human remains yes. in the 19th century?
0: Yes, they did, and that is, I uh, believe, to date still the majority of their collection. I could be wrong on that. They do have uh, a number of other collections as well,
2: like the Korean, I don't remember the rest so of them. I'm going to jump yeah, in there yeah. really quickly. Please the, do. the Smithsonian has an entire uh, repatriation office that has been working since the implementation of NAGPRA um, to you know, work with tribes to get remains back to them. Unfortunately, their collection was very, very large. Um, yeah. And as we all know, there wasn't necessarily funding attached to NAGPRA. Um, so it is is a civil process, and there are still remains that are being repatriated today. Um, yes. You know, and it's, it is time-consuming, which is uh, – you know, unfortunate, but as we all know, in archeology, span we don't have billions and billions of dollars to throw at anything. Um, <laughs> I know. If only. so they, they are repatriating those and they do also have, um, the, the Terry collection, which is a very large collection, um, from the 18 and 1900s. It is primarily African Americans and, um, whites and some, some other, Material, uh, not that those collections don't also have, you know, their ethical um,
0: issues, yeah. Issues,
2: I, I think just about every um, or almost every curated human remains collection, uh, particularly ones that are from you know, 100 plus years ago, 50 plus years ago there were some issues that we need to you know, still address today but the, the Smithsonian is working to address the the issues surrounding the Native American remains that they have
0: yeah, yeah, thank you for jumping in with that, Chelsea, because I was um, hoping to to poke at that a little bit uh, as well, because it's the Smithsonian has like you were saying, or like we were mentioning a very very extensive collection, which is why it's taken so long um, but they're all all museums who have. Received or are planning to receive or are in the currently receiving federal funds, uh, do you have to comply with NAGPRA? Mm-hmm. Many, including the Smithsonian, of course, many are still complying. Most, I don't actually know of a museum that has completed to all 100% completed their NAGPRA repatriation duties. And a lot of that has to do with ongoing. Um, concerns with identification, uh, to the, the tribes, uh, their home tribes and, uh, changes in interpretation of the law. And that's a whole other conversation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely, um, good to, to note that because it's not, it's something that is being handled. It's not like an out of control thing, but the history, of it is good to acknowledge though and it was a practice not just by the Smithsonian but by the entirety of the nation and that's something that people forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and we conveniently don't teach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, are a lot of issues when it comes to choosing patriotic or nationalistic education for children. You could talk about the Thanksgiving story as another example of a dubious history that is continually taught. Um, that you know may have a small granular piece of sand on a beach of <laughs> mm-hmm. false. Uh, falsities and in order to sort of propagate a positive feeling of the nation and pride in the United States of America so we are not without our dirty secrets Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's important like you were saying Emily to be sure to acknowledge those and to be like you know this is a really dark part of our history but it's important that we say, yeah, this happened, Um, Mm -hmm. but we're trying to improve the situation, such as NAGPRA being a big step in that process, um, and the current outcome of DAPL being another. So it feels like there's a lot of progress in the last, what, 20 years or so has been made, and this is where so much of us fear that it could be lost with this type of, oh, what kind of... term should I there's probably a term made up for this already but trumpian, trump-ian. <laughs> <laughs> interpretations of history mm-hmm. and of of who we are as a nation because that's also been a big conversation is is who who are we as a nation um mm-hmm. and archaeology has a very very big role in that uh, one of the biggest atrocities of uh the Iraq war force, aside from the loss of life, um, the political portion of it is uh, shortly following. So there are a couple of things, but uh, one being the U.S. actually going in and uneducated soldiers, not knowing, destroyed a number of historic uh, ancient um, sites, archaeological sites. There were some practices of I want to say Saddam Hussein actually did a restoration of part of the ancient city and stamped his seal on a bunch of the bricks, which puts his imprint on history in a way that uh, incorporates um, sort of a... Uh, I'm trying to think of a a good word for that, but it would be uh, national pride and his own imprint and his own faiths on things, Mm -hmm. um, past and present. So this gets into the whole politicization of archaeology, but this is, again, the Trumpian influence on archaeology. Do you guys have a better word than that? Trumpian kind of
2: feels...
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, it's potentially just a more nationalistic, um, inward way of thinking. Um, and, and to build off what you're talking about and you uh, mentioned, I mean, the thing that probably hits me the most, um, and we do see a, a major growth of the archaeology of immigration and with the major issues going on with Syria and the need for immigrants to come to the United States for, um, as refugees or just people needing, being able to find, um, refuge here. Uh, Trump's immigration policies are really, if you look, look in the past are very similar to what was happening in world war two and not allowing, um, Jews to be able to come into the United States um, all the way to how uh, Trump would like to have a, a registry for all Muslim people um, yeah. and for immigrants coming in and that is harkens back to the Japanese internment and it's almost it, it's a lack of care for what has happened in the past that was wrong mm-hmm. yeah, and um, with Studying that past history. I mean, I personally, I got a very um, brief synopsis of the Japanese internment during World War II um, during middle school and high school. It was kind of quickly glossed over. And it is a worry of mine at that his lack of care for thinking about the past, free thinking in general. I mean, goodness, look at how much he hates people, even just. Saying, "Oh no, you're you're wrong on that issue," and he goes ballistic.
2: Yeah. I mean, let's talk about the fact that he called CNN fake news in the press conference the other day. Yeah. What
1: is he news? asked then-
2: question, The gentleman asked a question that he didn't like. I think it should be clear to everyone at this point that he has no he has he has a shifting grasp on reality. Mm -hmm. And so that that's disconcerting again for I mean, he
1: willingly and happily made up a plaque about fake Civil War history because he wanted to have that tie to his golf course, but also perhaps glorify some aspect of the Civil War. I don't know. But then again, he's just making up history. What else is he going to make up or what else is he going to push aside because he just doesn't care?
2: Yeah, no, it's um, it's concerning um, definitely both from an archaeological standpoint as well as just from a kind of human standpoint. I will say really quickly, props. I know that there are a lot of people in the tech community who have basically pledged to not participate in building a registry, so good on them. On a kind of quick aside, I think he is aware that the power that history wields and that the example from his golf course uh, of that plaque shows that in that, you know, people go and visit historical sites. Gettysburg has a ton of visitors every year. Um, You know, Williamsburg does, I mean, there are archaeological sites. There are so many places in the U.S. that have history that, that people, you know, flock to to see what our history is and where we come from. Um, And Trump does seem to have at least grasped that you can make money off of that. You know, how much beyond you can make money off of that he has internalized um, is is questionable. Mm -hmm. Um, But, I mean, I I said it before, I think we really just, as archaeologists, have a duty to continue to stand up and say... That's not what history tells us. That's not what the archaeological record tells us. We will not allow you to rewrite history for your own benefit and the detriment of others. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: you know, and we are the the ones with the knowledge and the experience um, and the skills to to interpret this. We've studied for this. Um, I, I know that Trump isn't terribly keen on experts. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We're just uh, able to hold too much information in our giant hands. Right? But you're you're totally right, Chelsea. I mean, he completely dismisses experts of all kinds. What are, if he's not willing to, you know, take the advice of top advisors, is he going to listen to you know, one archaeologist or even a community of archaeologists or a community of historians, a community
2: of academics. Yeah. Eh, it's up. up I mean, that's debatable, but I think that's where the importance of public archaeology and and public history and engagement comes in, Mm -hmm. because we don't need him to be a mouthpiece Mm -hmm. for us. Um, I mean, we have this podcast, other podcasts hosted on this network. There are Facebook groups. There are webinars and um lots of websites. you know blogs and, and <laughs> blogs <laughs> Magazine. and everything that we do now with uh technology allows yes. us to provide speak out wonderful ourselves. rants about
1: <laughs> about our anchor. <laughs> well on that note, it is now time for a break. When we come back we can get into the different laws that could be affected and whether or not they're in a lot of danger. During this break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years. We've been discussing many different types of topics, from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode, and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. Again, thanks for listening. Welcome back. We're going to go into uh, about the laws that could be potentially affected by the Trump administration, like uh, NEPA, the NHPA, and so on. Who would like to get us started? I can hop
0: in on this. So, after consulting with some friends who are a little more cozy with a lot of these laws and how they're affected by an administration. Um, I have a brief overview of how this may play out and what stuff may really come into play. Um, One of the things that is not just at risk but also has a lot of uh, importance are executive orders. Now, these are... Things that most of the public doesn't really think about or hear about as far as an executive order, but there are important executive orders that people have heard about. Uh, The Japanese internment was an executive order. So there is an executive order uh, 13007 from Obama, which was the protection of indigenous sacred sites such as burial grounds at Standing Rock. There were others. Uh, Executive Order 11593 was an important one, which declared identification and protection of site deemed eligible by the NHPA as the law itself does not provide for identification measures. So, what this is, is this particular one makes Section 106 as applicable as it is and sort of creates Section 106. So, the National Historic Preservation Act. Which is an important law in and of itself was very. Vague and wide um, to open to, in, to interpretation, to say the least. You know, it was written, as I like to think, by hippies in the 60s that were all, you know, really excited about preserving history because with the highway building projects of the 50s, there was a lot of stuff that was mowed out mm-hmm. and mowed over. Um, I know in this city, there was a whole Polish neighborhood that was. Uh, removed in, when the one of the big freeways was put in, one of the overpasses. And that's something that is lamented now because there is a, a Polish population here that's been here for a while and have cultural events and such. So there's links like that that had these laws existed at the time may have been saved because there was a community that supported the saving and uh, the incorporation of these sites and the importance of place to the community itself, um, both historically and currently history so that's where section 106 and the procedures in order to investigate those connections and to make them eligible for what came to be known as the
1: or National Register of Historic Places
0: Thank you National yes. Register of Historic Places
1: <laughs>
0: uh, yeah it's getting late so <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was an executive order that created Section 106. So
1: that those are a couple of examples of important laws that are at risk. And, and just to jump in real quick, and the reason yeah. they're at risk um, is because they do provide a roadblock um, for too much construction, let's say roadwork, or a building just you know, happening anywhere they feel like. Um, as Kirsten was saying, there's a lot of cultural resources being destroyed. Well, these laws today provide the means for cultural resource management firms to even have archaeology technicians doing surveys and excavations. And it also provides the means to support um, the work at National Parks and Forest Service, our, uh, our BLM, BLM agencies. And without those laws, there really wouldn't be any legal reason um, for archeologists to survey an area, to record, to preserve, to provide data. All of the things that we do as archeologists would be put at risk if those laws were changed. Exactly. the reason they would be changed is again, they're a roadblock to quote unquote, progress. Yes, they create the red tape,
0: uh, so to speak. Now, the unique thing about the executive order 11593 is that it has actually been absorbed by the National Park Service regulations. Um, so they're a little bit protected in that Trump can't just go in and reject and ex- this particular executive order. I mean, he could, but it wouldn't really have any action. Um, but that, that's the problem with executive orders is they're written out and signed by a president and they can be taken away just as easily. So this is where um, there's a lot of discussion of him going in and uh, eliminating a lot of Obama's work uh, because a lot of it was done through executive order uh, due to the uh, stalemates that occurred in Congress over the last several years.
2: That was very tactful of you. <laughs> thank you
1: <laughs> one concern on top of that even presidential proclamations even though there is there are not any examples of a an, an incoming president overturning a presidential proclamation that would include creating a national monument so there's no example of uh it, uh, a national monument being terminated um, or changed by an incoming president—it's always possible. And as we can tell, there change is coming, and not all of it necessarily <laughs> positive. And President Obama recently created Bears Ears National Monument. Um, and if you're not too familiar with it, it's. Uh, It's amazing, huge, new monument full of archaeological sites. It's over a million acres big. I mean, it's a a large monument, and it's incredibly important. Well, even though that type of monument has never been overturned, terminated, etc., it is possible. And that is a fear, considering the type of person Trump is.
2: Trump has certainly not allowed, never been done before, to keep him from yeah. trying to do things sometimes mm-hmm. successfully sometimes not so successfully <laughs> um <laughs> i mean in in terms of other things that that could potentially go go wrong um there's a a big issue with the the chair of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee yes. um who is senator uh John Hoven, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, um, I've never actually heard it said out loud, um, He's a Republican from, from North Dakota, uh, who's a former governor. He's a supporter of both the Keystone XL pipeline as well as the Dakota Access pipeline. Um, and he was elected to lead the, the Senate Indian Affairs Committee um, within the first 10 days of the new Congress being being open. Um, and, and Obama has, you know, stepped up to, to DAPL and said that, you know, this is wrong and we shouldn't be, be doing it, but unfortunately he is leaving. Um, and now you have, uh, a gentleman who has a, a track record of being more interested in quote unquote progress than, uh, respecting cultural traditions, um, or cultural understandings, or, you know, even a desire to not have to drink polluted water by a local population that, uh, he thinks doesn't or shouldn't, you know, be able to make that, that judgment call, um, Mm -hmm. for themselves, you know, so, so while we've seen some progress in the past couple months with DAPL, um, you know, one, the, the DAPL people are still kind of trying to push forward and have said that they'd rather pay a fine than have to reroute you know, but there are, they're also getting some, some friends in Congress and, and got to have a, a little bit more teeth, which I don't think that they need. So that is also something that could potentially be negatively affected by this, uh, this change of power. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There are a couple of other concerning appointees. Um,
0: I don't know if, if Zink, I think is his name or Zinky, Zinke. similarly, haven't heard his name pronounced in person or out loud. Um, But Zink is a representative from Montana who has been tapped on the shoulder for Secretary of the Interior, Hmm. which, you know, Sally Jewell is the most amazing Secretary (laughs) of the Interior that I've heard speak. Um, And it is a depressing thing to think that Zink may, Ryan Zink may be following in her footsteps. Um, Interestingly, Um, There is some objection from the Montana Wilderness Association has published last month their response to his um, possible uh, selection for this office, even though that he is a representative for the state, he hasn't actually apparently taken much heed of what is um, important to the people of the state as far as working with wilderness management um, and uh, other things like there's a a Blackwater Clearwater Stewardship Project, which would add National Forest. Uh, However, he has instead not taken a position on it and has instead voted for a bill that would have allowed uh, logging and building of roads and dams within wilderness areas, which is what wilderness areas are supposed to prevent. So Mm -hmm. it's seems to be kind of a reversal, uh, the way that he has voted, uh, from how Sally Jewell has really kind of stepped forward and and moved the <clears throat> position of Secretary of Interior in a very uh, preservation um, direction that she has. Uh, he seems to be a lot more... Um, uh, for dams and mines and and logging, which in and of themselves aren't always bad. Uh, the issue is, is when you are taking lands that are preserved or put aside for preservation, you shouldn't be able to, because that's what they're being preserved. <laughs> so it's kind of a, you know, there's a few appointees that have been concerning, of course, but those are two, most definitely, that have um, some impact on archaeology, and not just archaeology specifically, but like you were saying, that everything, including the relationship between archaeologists as scholars and um, the Native community, I think might be stressed uh, when you have someone like Hoven in office.
1: One thing we do have to keep in mind, I think, with all of this, because, I mean, I do think we do have a a right to be afraid. We do have a right to be concerned. We have a right to be stressed. But we have to also keep in mind the there are some precedents where uh, laws, CRM laws and so forth have been. People have tried to change them, and it's much harder than they anticipated. Um, there's a good example that uh, a represent- a Republican representative tried uh, under the second term of um, President Bush W. Uh, they tried to find a way to get around the National Historic Preservation Act. They tried to find ways to circumvent it so that it wouldn't be effective. Well, their efforts were completely defeated. And not only just by, you know, other representatives, it was primarily by groups of archaeologists, historians, people who understood that our history matters and it, it deserves protection and it deserves to be, not, well, just not only protected, but it deserves to be, and I cannot think of the right word <laughs> to be disseminated to everybody, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it yeah. needs to be protected so that we can learn from it.
2: Yes. Accessibility is super important. Exactly.
1: I think we're all very tired. I, I like, think what so. What is the word?
0: Yes, that is a very good point. I mean, it, there are some things that can be changed, but other stuff is going to be much more difficult to to overturn and to challenge. Uh Again, executive orders are gonna be the easiest, but there are a lot of laws that will be very difficult to change. These would be things like the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978, Archaeological Resources Protection Act of 1979, Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act of 1990, also known as NAGPRA, and the Antiquities Act of 1916, which is actually the one that's coming under fire the most. Now, the difficulty with these, from what I understand, is because um, Congress enacted them, Congress has to work together to undo it, um, and the Supreme Court has to more or less be okay with that. Now, considering the way that things are, there's that is still a risk but I think it is lower I can't really I, granted I couldn't really see Trump becoming president but at the same time it would be difficult <laughs> to imagine all of Congress and the Supreme Court going along with getting rid of any or all of these laws so um, modifying them may be possible and that's where there is some discussion with the Antiquities Act and like you were saying before uh, Emily, with changing the way that uh, the president... Well, you were talking about uh, changing the president's uh, declaration for the national monument. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also currently some discussion and some um, some bills, I think, in Congress now that are talking about modifying the how uh, national monuments are made, that it would be... Uh, up to Congress to pass it. And it would also need to be approved by the local, the state, um, and, uh, legislation. There we go.
2: I think with the, um, discussing things that can be, uh, changed, overturned, uh, adapted by, by Congress and, and Supreme court, it's important to remember that, you know, we do, we do have a say, um, all yes. of the, yes. your, your senator and your uh, congressman's information are publicly available. I'm happy to put a link to all of their uh, phone numbers. Um, you know, many, many staffers have said calling is more effective than, um, than sending an email or signing a petition because you are actually forcing a person to, to talk to you um, and to hear your, your voice, not just they're really busy and hopefully they'll have time to, to read my email. Um, mm-hmm. but you but know, if you're you t- see something going on that you don't like as an archeologist, as a citizen, like call them,
1: that's an, that's an excellent, what there for. excellent call to action. That is a great call to action and great advice.
2: Literally uh, call. Yeah. 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 Do it. I mean, like I, I have saved my senators and my representatives phone numbers on speed dial in my cell phone, uh, yeah. which makes it really easy. easy to do. Right. <laughs> Um, You know, and and still continue to to sign petitions and and be engaged um, online and and elsewhere, but you do have a voice and you should use it. Mm
1: -hmm. Exactly. And I think that's an excellent point to start our closing thoughts about our discussion or if you want to provide more to a call to action.
0: Yes. So very important to call your representative, your senator, Any local government, check out what's going on in your area. It's not, I mean, national is super important, but as... We've noticed some of these things, it's it's getting more important to act on a local level because even if the national goes sideways, your local will stand strong to weather the storm. There are specific laws that are currently in the Senate that uh, you can uh, look at and act on and uh, r- request their... Uh, direction, um, if you're not sure how your senator or your representative are voting. I'm just going to rattle off a few numbers here for the bills that are in Congress right now, and you can look them up and see which you feel strongly about and make sure that you contact your representative, if that's okay. Um, So, H.R. 399, Secure Our Borders First Act of 2015, H.R. 1806, America Competes Reauthorization Act. H.R. Uh, 2, uh, 2285, Prevent Trafficking and Cultural Property Act. H.R. 2817, National Historic Preservation Amendments Act. H.R. 4909, National Defense Authorization Act of 2016. And then for the Senate, we have S. 2943-3. S-3084, American Innovates and in Competitiveness Act, S-3127, Safeguard Tribal Objects of Cultural Patrimony Act. Um, some quick good news. I actually mentioned that earlier. So some of the good news I was going to mention, you can totally edit this out later, That's okay. Don't is worry about it. the passage of the bill which repatriates Kennewick Man. Um, that did get passed as well as, uh, let's see, within 90 days of December 16th. So that should be happening any day now from the Washington State Department of Archaeological Archaeology and Historic Preservation, also known as DAP. Um, will be enacting or uh, guiding that through the process from the Army Corps of Engineers um, to the, I believe, Yakima tribe. On December 10th, the Senate passed the National Park Service Centennial Act, which um, the President Obama signed into law on December 16th, reauthorized the Historic Preservation Fund through 2023, which does... Uh, Fund, the National Register, Centennial Challenge Fund, the National Parks, and the Advisory Council for Historic Preservation. Basically everything nationally, more or less, that has to do with archaeology and historic preservation uh, has been running off of a random pocket fund for the last year or so since it expired and hadn't been uh, new funding hadn't been passed until now. So this is a Big thumbs up to Obama for rushing that through um, before um, the buck passed. The last bit of, of good news. Um, oh, this is. Less good news, but it's uh, news nonetheless. So in Congress, (laughs) the uh, S33 was introduced on January 5th. So this is the new Congress that would alter the method by which national monuments could create, could be created under the Antiquities Act. And this is what I mentioned before, that they're trying to tweak the Antiquities Act of 1916 so that national monuments can no longer longer be declared by the president alone. It would have to be um, authorized by Congress and the legislatures in which the states, the monuments would be located in. So that's something to rally against, I believe, um, because national monuments won't get approved by everybody unless it's something like I
2: don't even know.
1: The Puppies and Pearl Kittens Harbor.
2: Monument. <laughs> the Puppies yeah. and Kittens I mean, yeah. who doesn't want the Puppies and Kittens Monument?
1: <laughs> Best place. It's quite fuzzy.
0: <laughs> so that's that's something to keep in mind and to investigate further, and we can have a list of these on the site um, for further investigation um, in the show notes.
2: Yeah, I think it's really Definitely. great that you um, pull all the, those actual um, the bills that are kind of up right now or recent good news. So thanks very much for doing that. Um, and I would like to, to kind of second your call to local action. Um, I think that that is very important as well as, you know, national, national action. Um, and just, I, I think it's good that we're having these conversations and that people are as worried as they are because it actually means that people are going to engage, um, which is how we protect our cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, yes, it's a little bit of a <clears throat> scary time and, and things are changing in a direction that maybe we <clears throat> didn't hope for. Um, but we still have power, um, as, as the people and we need to remember that and exercise our power.
0: Yes. And as an archaeologists, it can get, it can be easy to lose ourselves in, our scholarly pursuits and even technicians that I know have in the past been lost in why are we doing this and becoming very burnt out. And I think some of this is definitely a reminder as to why we do what we do.
1: Yeah. I I feel like I'd only be echoing what you both are saying, just <laughs> be part of the community, be part of the archaeology community, be part of the greater community. Don't be afraid to rock the boat. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And bug the bejesus out of your senators and representatives. It's fun. <laughs> it is
2: quite fun. Uh. So I think that that probably gets us to the end of our episode. It does. Perhaps yeah. even a little bit over. Yeah. Yeah. but well, thank This you. has been a wonderful conversation. Yes.
1: Yeah. Thank you thank both you. so much for being part of it.
2: <laughs> yes. yes. And, we'll,
0: and we'll have to do it again, I'm sure, as uh, a lot of this um, progresses or doesn't or whatever it does. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we'll, yes. I'm sure we'll have be an update to episode about. before too long. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: So stay tuned.